I'm Eliza Rosenberry. And on this week's episode, we're talking about a book set in Los Angeles. And so we wanted to recommend a few other books that are set in LA. I'm going to recommend a book that I actually haven't read yet. I just got it for my birthday as a gift from my dad. It's called Southland by Nina Revoir. And it's an older book, but it was just selected as the book club pick by Alta, which is a California magazine. And they host a monthly or quarterly book club discussion with these sort of classic California books. And my dad has been attending the virtual book club sessions and reading along during the pandemic. And he said this book was really amazing. It's a novel set in LA. And it's about a Japanese-American family that owns a, I think, a convenience store or grocery store where four young African-American boys are killed. And then the sort of like investigation into what happened. But it sounds amazing. And I can't wait to read it. So that's called Southland by Nina Revoir. Well, first of all, happy birthday, Eliza. Thank you, Tavia. And actually, happy birthday to you as well. We have back-to-back birthdays. Thank you, Eliza. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I love when your dad makes an appearance on the podcast. (laughs) So does he. He's he's an avid listener. (laughs) I love it. I love it. And this book sounds really good. So I'm Tavia Kowalchuk, and I actually had to like really dig deep through my library to find books that are set in LA. I think I tend to prefer the East Coast vibe. And I read a lot of historical fiction, which wouldn't really be set in LA. But one book that's set in LA is Lily and the Octopus by Stephen Rowley, which I think I've mentioned earlier on this show. But I do remember the LA vibe. Like he's definitely out walking his dog in West Hollywood or something like that. Like you definitely get the vibe. And then another book that I read that's set in LA is a memoir. And I read this for book club years and years and years ago. And I will even admit that it was my pick. It's Stories I Tell Myself by Rob Lowe. (laughs) (laughs) And the stories were pretty good. The book itself, not very deep, but the stories about his celebrity experiences were pretty good. I guess I tend to prefer the New York City celebrities. Like I'm thinking of like bossy pants and those kinds of books. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. We're definitely East Coast girls. Yeah. (laughs) On today's show, a captivating true story about the African-American men and women who have been continuing the tradition of Black cowboys in Compton, California. Today, we discuss a profound book, a true story, The Compton Cowboys. And later on in the show, we sit down with the author, Walter Thompson Hernandez, to hear all about his experience writing this story about trauma, race, identity, and inequality in America. And now we present to you The Compton Cowboys, Abridged. The Compton Cowboys is a story told by a Compton native, New York Times reporter Walter Thompson Hernandez, about a group of African-American men and women who are carrying on a centuries-old tradition of Black cowboys in Compton, Los Angeles. This story explores the good and the bad, the hardships, traumas, triumphs, and transformations that the Compton Cowboys endure, and the true community that comes from the Black cowboys who rely on one another day in and day out. The Compton Cowboys of today originated from a youth organization that was created by Maisha Akbar, named the Compton Junior Posse, with the goal of keeping the streets of Compton safe while weaving in the values and legacy of the original Cowboys. In this book, we witness the struggles that are faced when Maisha is handing over her role as leader to her nephew, Randy, and ultimately the struggles that come with that transition of power, whether he will be able to maintain the ranch financially. In addition to Randy, the Cowboys include Anthony, a former drug dealer and prison inmate and now a family man and mentor, Kiara, a single mother pursuing her dream of winning a national rodeo championship, 
and a tight clan of 20-somethings, Kenneth, Keenan, Charles, and Trey, for whom horses bring the freedom, protection, and status that often elude the young Black men of Compton. The Compton Cowboys gives us a rare glimpse into the lives of individuals who are united by a long-standing tradition in urban America. What did you think of this book, Tavia? So full disclosure, I love their Instagram. Um, I just think it is the juxtaposition of these Black Cowboys riding through the streets of Compton is endlessly fascinating. It is so cool in this book to get the kind of behind the scenes look at this subculture of America. It really takes you well beyond their Instagram. Their Instagram is just like beauty shots. But when you read this book, you really understand like what they're facing. It's not just like, I don't want to say glamorous, but it's not just like this sort of romantic urban cowboy situation. I was rooting for them to save the ranch. I was like, are they going to be able to do it? Are they going to get the funding? Well, the horses get thrushed. You know, it rained one day and there was like a big deal. Are the horses going to get thrushed? So every step of the way, I could really get a sense of the challenges that face them. And I can't wait to get the update from Walter when we talk to him later on in the show. Yeah, absolutely. I felt like, to me, the reporting of this story was really incredible. Walter is a New York Times reporter. He was clearly embedded very closely with, I don't want to say characters, with the figures that he profiles in this book. And the level of detail and the level of insight that he has into their day-to-day lives, into their backgrounds, and into sort of what motivates them to engage with the horses and to be on the ranch and all that was really wonderful. So I agree. I thought the reporting was excellent. And this book came across as very real. The author did not pull any punches about what life is like in Compton. But at the same time, he never pitied or judged these cowboys. To me, this was a different lifestyle. But the way that he wrote about it, it was like very matter of fact. And I really appreciated that. Yeah, I totally agree. I love narrative nonfiction like this that sort of takes you through the experience of real people. And I like that the author focused on, you know, one of the hallmarks of that kind of genre is the author focuses on like a small group of main figures, main characters, people, but also gives all this background on the history of Compton, the demographic changes over the last few decades, the challenges the community has experienced, the local politics. I feel like I learned so much about Compton and about Los Angeles. I know one of those details was that there's actually a Black rodeo that started so that Black competitors could feel comfortable because they were not being taken seriously at the regular air quotes run regular rodeos. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel like it read like an ensemble piece. The level of detail that we get about some of these cowboys' thoughts and daily lives was truly amazing. Like I couldn't really get a sense that there was any one real hero of the book. But certain moments really stood out to me. And it sort of goes to what you were saying earlier about how the author was so embedded with them. He tells us about Randy crying out of frustration. And Anthony really shares like very precise details about his time in jail. Those were stories that I just think speaks to, like you said, the level of reporting. Yeah, absolutely. I also found it so interesting to read about the horse culture Early in the book, Walter writes about the decision to go from Western-style riding to English-style riding, which is fancier. You're wearing those britches, and you're much closer to the horse. And Western riding is more like casual and like meant to be more comfortable. 
and what that meant to the cowboys and what that meant to the fundraising and all. It was just so interesting. It was, it was very emblematic. Side note, I am a huge fan of singer-songwriter Ryan Bingham. And I follow his Instagram too. And he has written with the Compton Cowboys. And when I saw that in his Instagram, I like freaked out. <laughs> like, oh my God, my worlds are colliding. It was so funny. That's so cool. I love that. All right. Well, I can't wait to talk to Walter about his reporting and how these Cowboys are doing and what's up with the ranch. I'm looking forward to that conversation. I know. I have so many questions. So I think we should toast with a beer because don't they drink a lot of beer on the ranch? Yeah. All right. So Cheers. Do you have a beer handy? I, I don't. It's my coffee mug. <laughs> but we'll pretend. Yeah. It's like 10, 10.30 in the morning, but... <laughs> we should record these at 7 o'clock at night so we can really drink the alcohol. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Quick reminder. We love hearing from you, especially now that we're working from home. Join our Facebook group, The Book Club Girls, where you can stay connected with other book lovers and pose your own questions to authors who appear on our show. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash The Book Club Girls. And stay tuned after the show for a short exclusive sample of the Compton Cowboys audiobook. Today, we're joined by Walter Thompson Hernandez, whose book, The Compton Cowboys, is out now. Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, Walter. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're so happy to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. So we're going to dive right into it. We know you're a New York Times reporter. So could you tell our listeners a little bit, how did you get your start in reporting and what inspired you to become a journalist? I've always been really curious about the world and really curious about the sort of like meanings that people attach to their lives. And, And I think like for me, it was more so a question of of exploring that professionally than the other way around. I was in a PhD program at UCLA in ethnic studies before applying to the New York Times. And I got hired and I kind of just left my program after one year and landed a job at the New York Times. And I've kind of always been really curious about exploring questions about identity, questions about race, questions about family and community. And I think it's kind of led me to be here now. That's quite a journey from a PhD program to reporting full-time. Was it difficult or did you feel like you brought a lot of the skills that you were already cultivating in your program to your work now? Totally. To be really honest, I think it was a lot more exciting because I was like, oh, okay, so people will actually read what I have to work on. I mean, I think academia can be really great, but maybe five or six people will like read like an academic research paper. And I think like the New York Times has a much bigger audience than that. So like that was really exciting and really cool to be able to share with like my mom or my aunt kind of what I was working on and like it not being this like abstract concept that is really a wild idea for them, you know, so that was really exciting for me. So speaking about the audience of the New York Times, that is where I had first heard of the Compton Cowboys. And then when I found out there was a book, I was really excited. And you set this up a little bit in the book, but I'd love if you would share on this show when you first learned about the Compton Cowboys yourself and then what inspired you to take this research and then grow it into a book. I grew up in Southeast LA, which is about five or 10 minutes away from Compton, um, depending on traffic. And my mom and I would sort of always drive to Compton like every weekend to buy whatever we sort of needed. And I'd always see like black men and women on horses. And I think for me, it was really interesting and really exciting because we were never learning about 
the sort of history of like black cowboys or, or not even history, but, you know, day-to-day experiences. Because, you know, like oftentimes a lot of people will sort of relegate the black cowboys to the history books. And I think deny that there's like such a rich and thriving culture that still exists today. I was six years old and I was really surprised and I was really shocked and I was really inspired. And I sort of always remembered the feeling I had when I first saw them, you know, like I felt like it was so beautiful and so pure. And I also felt like, you know, to, to be frank, I felt like I had been lied to. And I know that I wasn't alone because nobody else in my school was learning about Black Cowboys, right? So I think as a New York Times writer, you know, I work on that story and I kept thinking about the six-year-old version of myself and how he felt and, and sort of like the feelings that that version of myself felt. And I knew this would be a really popular story because of that. And that sort of led to, to a book deal and a, a full book. I love it. You mentioned a little bit of the history of Black Cowboys. Would you mind giving us a little bit of that history? Sure, absolutely. So following the Civil War, almost one in four cowboys were in fact Black. These were folks who came from the South and went to places like Texas, places like Wyoming, uh, Nevada, parts of California. And, and essentially what happened is following the Civil War, there were very limited employment opportunities for African-Americans. So folks could either you know, go north and work as like elevator conductors, potentially bellhops, et cetera, or sometimes head west. You know? And I think for a lot of Black Americans you know, who already came from rural backgrounds where like thriving equestrian cultures existed, you know, moving west and heading west was really an opportunity to continue that spirit and tradition. So a lot of Black Americans really took to the prairie and took to the west to essentially continue what they have been doing for years now. Wow. So one of the things that I think is so interesting about your book is the way that you write with objectivity about the cowboys, but it's clear that you were like deeply embedded with them. Some of the details that you pull out from them, like when Randy cries, like this is just so intimate. And I would love to know more about what it was like for you to meet these guys, get to know them. Did it take you a long time to build that rapport or was it something that came easily? I would love to know more about that. That's a really great question. I think like a question like that is really at the heart of of what I think makes this book kind of different than than sort of other ethnographies or sort of like journalistic accounts about a community or about a group of friends or about a person, right? I think as I write about, I think in, in the intro of the book, my first experience with the cab was like was was actually kind of comical and kind of funny, right? Because like I show up to the ranch and I had sent Randy, who's the sort of leader of, of the Cowboys, an, an Instagram DM, and I'm like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a New York Times writer, and I'd love to sit down with you guys and, and talk to you about your life, essentially, in like a really broad way, right? And and he was like, sure, you know, come to the ranch at three on Sunday, and and so I show up to the ranch, and I, I don't think Randy communicated that with like the rest of his friends, you know. So <laughs> it was like two fifty-five. I always get to wherever I get to really early, and and Randy's not there, and so I knock on the door, and Carlton, his brother, is at the door, and Carlton and I are, are sort of having like, no pun intended, but like a standoff, right? Where, where it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like he, <laughs> pew, pew. that, 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 I'm, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but Carlton doesn't believe that I'm a New York Times writer for, I think, reasons that I also write about in the book. I think for a lot of people, right? It's like a New York Times writer sort of looks a certain way, you know, acts a certain way, lives in Connecticut and like 
commute to the city, you know, every single day or something like that, right? And that's definitely not who I am, who I embody. I grew up five minutes away from Compton, right? And so we're having our standoff and I showed him a business card. And I think like five minutes later, it sort of clicked me. I was like, oh, okay. Like, I think Randy did mention something about some guy coming here to, to write a story or something. And we hit it off after that. But but I think our sort of like tiff at the beginning was interesting. But I think ultimately it was really a unique position because in this story, I was both a participant and an observer. And I think that's what makes this so unique is that, you know, I consider myself a part of the community. Like I identify with these men and women, both racially, economically, culturally. And I think it's almost impossible for me to be objective in that sense, right? In the sense that I am part of this community and I'm also trying to be a fly on the wall, you know, trying to be objective, like trying to have like a bird's eye sort of view of what's happening. And I think historically, you know, what, what has tended to happen whether it's like academics or researchers or journalists or writers, is that there's been a tendency to just parachute into a community, spend time there, extract information, and essentially leave and never have a connection to that community. And I know journalism school and PhD programs teach you that essentially. They teach you a version of that. And that's what I am always aware of and what I try to do differently. And so I spent a year and a half with these guys and, and with Kira Wade as well the only woman in the group. And it was a really private time that we shared. And I spent a lot of hours with them. And there were times when like I sort of blended in and just became a fly on the wall. And there were times when I was a part of the story. And I think that's what makes the story really important and powerful for me. You're listening to the Book Club Girl podcast, where our guest this week is Walter Thompson Hernandez, whose book, The Compton Cowboys, is out now. You can read more about Walter's book at bookclubgirl.com slash podcast. Coming up on the Book Club Girl podcast, Walter answers more questions. And later in the show, we ask about his literary white whale. Stick around. This episode of the Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by Little and Often, a memoir by Trent Pressler. Little and Often is a story about a fractured relationship between a father and son and how grief can take you on an unexpected journey of heartbreak and self-discovery far beyond expectation. Available wherever books are sold. Welcome back to the show. This episode, we're speaking with Walter Thompson Hernandez, author of The Compton Cowboys. Throughout the book, we learn about some really intense things that have happened, sexual assault and trauma. Can you share a little bit about what it was like for you as sort of continuing this conversation as both someone who knows these people so well, having spent a year and a half with them, but also being a reporter, what is that like to sort of have a front row seat to these experiences? There were a lot of moments where information was shared about death, about violence, about sexual assault. And I think for me, before I'm a writer and before I'm, I'm a reporter or journalist, like I'm a human being, right? And I think because of that, like I really had to approach these situations with care. And I'm especially thinking about Kiara, Kiara Wade, who shared very intimate moments about sexual assault and sexual violence. And I think for me, I identify as a man and there's no way I can identify with what she experienced because I'm not a woman. But I think for me, it was really important to be honest and to really like handle that information with, with a lot of care and a lot of sort of tenderness. And I think there were moments when we had to stop the interview. You know, it was a really sort of powerful moment. And I kept on assuring Kiera that, you know, we didn't have to talk about that if she didn't want to. And she thought it was really important to share that, you know, if, if not for her own sort of like therapeutic evolution, but for others as well. And so I think there are so many accounts of death and violence and, and situations like that. 
it really sort of forced me to think about how do we portray this in a way that still respects their story and still honors who they are, but it's also radically honest. And I think we all want whatever we create to be honest. And I think at the end of the day, the Cowboys reading about their own accounts was something that was, I was kind of scared of. I think that there's always like a tense moment when, when you're writing about someone and, and how they will receive that, how they would interpret that. And, and so the most gratifying thing for me about this book was that I think I got their story right. And they've shared that with me. And that's the thing I'm most proud about. You were talking about really getting this personal information that these intimate details and them trusting you and sharing that for sort of a, a larger reason with your reader. And I think as a reader, it made me very invested in this group of people and in their mission and in their organization. And it was great to see that you still kept reporting on them. In the summer of 2020, after the book came out, you published an article about the Cowboys taking to the streets in protest over the murder of George Floyd. And I'd love to know more about how the Cowboys are involved in that movement. Really at the height of this move for racial justice following George Floyd's death was that horses have historically been used to control protesters or demonstrators, right? At every sort of demonstration, there's always usually horses that show up. And so what was really fascinating about this was I think this is one of the first times that I've ever experienced where horses are essentially being used to ride for peace and not just for peace, but like on the side of the demonstrators and organizers. And I think that was what was so powerful about this. It sort of felt like it was a watershed moment in like both the arc of this book and of their story in a way where like, you know, these horses have been so fundamental to not just their healing, but to also community healing and to see and to be there when, when, you know, hundreds of black horse riders show up to ride for peace was a really beautiful moment. And it's something that, that Randy Hook really spoke about openly. You know, it, it was his goal to always sort of connect what he believed to be a very sort of fragmented black horse riding culture. And I think it was a really beautiful moment because of that. I love that he succeeded in realizing that vision, especially for such an important moment in America. I'd love to get an update, if you can, on how things are going at the ranch, if they've secured any more funding, if kids are coming for the yeah. programs, how are things going? How do we leave the Cowboys? Totally. So the Cowboys are still a thriving organization. The pandemic did halt their Young Riders program, but you know I think they're going to start a newer version of the youth program, which of course adheres to socially distant writing and, and masks. I just did an event with uh, Randy last week for the LA Public Library, and, and it was really great to be able to, to speak to him virtually, of course. But it was just you know a reminder that Randy really feels like he's accomplished a lot, and he has accomplished a lot. And I think what's really special is that it's his goal to sort of be able to expand this model, right? This like urban youth writer model across the U.S. And I think that's his next goal. And he feels like they've done a lot of good in Compton and they have. And I think they're really looking forward to the future. They're so cool. You know, I think like they'll be the first to tell you that I think that the New York Times story just really catapulted them into, you know, this this really cool, fun place where they're actually having a really great impact on popular culture. And I think we're all really excited about that because, like, they look really cool, you know, and they uh -huh. also have a great message. So it, it's sort of like a win-win. Yeah. <laughs> totally. 100%. <laughs>
So we have one more question for you, Walter. We ask all of the authors who come on our show the same question when we wrap up the conversation. And we want to know, what is your literary white whale? So it's a book that you've either meant to read or when you started to read and never finished. But do you have one in particular? (laughs) You know what's so funny? Like, you might laugh at this, actually, but I actually ordered... Moby Dick and The Odyssey <laughs> recently. <laughs> Don't ask me why, but I never got around to reading those. Like I think the elementary school, middle school, high school I went to like just didn't offer those books. I'm going to finish them this summer and I'm really looking forward to finishing them. <laughs> some, some light end of pandemic reading. <laughs> yeah, <super light. laughs> Well, good luck. Oh my well, gosh. You'll have to let Thank us know you. what you think if you. I will um, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to hear about Moby Dick. I'm still traumatized from when I tried to read it. So no, I hear, I hear you. Right on, right on. We support you. <laughs> yeah, we do. Walter, thank you so much for coming on the Book Club Girl podcast. It was such a treat to speak with you, and we really, really appreciate it. It's been so much fun. I really appreciate it. It's great. I'm so excited, and the paperback is out now, so it's perfect timing. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Awesome. Thanks, Walter. Thank you, Walter. That was Walter Thompson Hernandez, whose new book, The Compton Cowboys, is out now. To find out more about Walter's book and how to buy your copy, head to bookclubgirl.com slash podcast, where you can also find links to everything mentioned in this episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a rating and leave a review. Another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast, tell a friend. It really helps others to find us. You'll hear from us again in two weeks when we'll be speaking with Alyssa Cole, author of the New York Times bestseller, When No One Is Watching. If you want to read the book before the podcast drops, Head over to hc.com and use promo code BOOKCLUBGIRL, all one word, for 25% off and free shipping for any book discussed on this podcast. Please stay in touch with us between episodes. We're both on Instagram. Find us at Eliza is Reading and at Tavia Reads and of course at Book Club Girl. You can join in on our conversations too. In a few weeks, we are interviewing Karen Slaughter about her top-rated mystery thriller, The Silent Wife. If you have questions for Karen, please post them in the comments on our Book Club Girls Facebook group or call us at 212-207-7336. You can also send us an email, thegirls at bookclubgirl.com. We would really love to hear from you. And if your question gets asked on the show, we send you a free book. Free book. Just wanted to let that sink in. (laughs) Before we go, a big thank you to Caroline Quash, who produced today's episode, to our audio editor and engineer, Samantha Doyle of Hangar Studios, and an even bigger thank you to Walter, our guest today. Until next time, I'm Eliza. And I'm Tavia. Happy reading. Still, there was something else that connected me to their lives. I felt drawn to their story because, in many ways, I too was challenging a perceived stereotype. My first week at the New York Times office in Manhattan revealed a particular truth. I looked very different from the other reporters who sat with me during our two-day orientation. Most of them weren't young, weren't black or brown, didn't wear brightly colored Nike Air Max shoes, and didn't get their haircuts in a Compton barbershop like I did. The first time I drove to the ranch, I was met with some apprehension because of my appearance. Except for Randy, 
whom I had chatted with on Instagram. Nobody knew what I looked like prior to meeting me. When I pulled up to Caldwell Street in my gray 2009 Toyota Prius, playing Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid Mad City album loud enough to be heard outside my car, none of the guys expected someone who looked like me to work for the New York Times. Who are you looking for? Carlton asked me as I stood on the other side of the double-bolted metal doors in my 1995 Air Max's blue denim jeans and black crewneck sweater. I spoke to Randy on the phone, and he said to be here at 3.30 for the interview. I quickly responded, speaking to the metal door, still unaware of who I was talking to. My name is Walter, and I'm a reporter with the New York Times. Carlton finally opened the door, but was still on the fence about who I was so he proceeded with caution and took another glance at me, this time a much closer one. After a minute had passed, I suddenly remembered that I had prepared for this moment earlier in the day. Before heading to the ranch that afternoon, I had stacked my wallet, as I always did, with about ten company-issued business cards that had my name, contact information, and, most importantly, occupation. New York Times reporter. This wasn't the first time something like this had happened. People always gave me the craziest looks whenever I mentioned what I did for a living. When Carlton continued to size me up, I reached into my wallet and handed him a business card. Oh, the New York Times, he said with a cheerful smile as he read the name on the card. Walter Thompson Hernandez, he read out slowly, enunciating every word. Yeah, Randy had said a reporter was coming to the ranch today. But shit, my nigga, I didn't think it would look like you. After we exchanged a laugh and gave each other a firm handshake hug combo, he welcomed me inside his home, where we waited for the rest of the guys to arrive. The Compton Cowboys were expecting a middle-aged white man that day. They were expecting someone who, according to Keenan, had a more serious vibe. Never in their wildest dreams, or mine, did they think that a young man of color who grew up minutes away from them would be representing one of the most prestigious newspapers in the world. That nobody believed me was both disheartening and hilarious. I mean, given the perception of the times, I couldn't really blame them. 